the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made. So in aggregate, the global semiconductor market generated around $600 billion in revenue in 2021. That's been growing mid to high single digits over the last decade, so well ahead of of nominal GDP growth, albeit it's been more volatile. Welcome to the inaugural podcast in our quality investing series, where each episode we're going to take a deep dive into a particular investment theme, looking at the market dynamics, the structural growth trends, specific stocks operating within the industry, all through a quality investing lens. My name is Joe Knight, and I'm a portfolio specialist on the quality investment team here at 91. And I'm delighted to be joined by Charlie Dutton, portfolio manager and a specialist in Asia, and Will Knott, one of our global analysts on the team, who are going to help us tackle the world of semiconductors. Semiconductors are hugely relevant at the moment. You only need to open the newspaper, look at a news article, and you read about many industries facing chip shortages. Equally, they're geopolitical headwinds that the industry is facing. And on the positive side of the spectrum, there's an ever-increasing demand for chips, with some predicting the industry to be worth over $1 trillion by 2030. So there's a huge amount to unpick today. So over the course of the next 30 minutes, We're really going to firstly set out the basics and the terminologies within the space. We're then going to look at some stock-specific issues, look at the competitive advantages of some of the stocks operating in the semiconductor world. We're going to tackle the geopolitical headwinds and ultimately provide an opinion of who we think will be the long-term winners within the space. So, Will, let's crack things off with... Really, what is a semiconductor and why are they so important? And perhaps touch upon some of the end use cases for semiconductor chips. Sure. So let's start by looking around the room. The smartphones in our pockets, the microphones and and laptops that we're using to record this, even the light switch that controls the aircon and lighting in here, they all require semiconductors. It's really no exaggeration to say that modern life wouldn't really be possible without them. But the question is, well, what actually are they? The clue is in the name. So we call a material a substance that can conduct electricity a conductor and one that doesn't allow the flow of electricity an insulator. And semiconducting substances like silicon fall somewhere in between the two and can conduct electricity under certain conditions. Put another way, they're basically like a switch, on or off, depending if electrical current is flowing through them. And What humanity realized during the the course of the 20th century is that we can create electrical switches using semiconducting substances. And these switches can store information. So store information on or off, ones and zeros as binary code. We use that binary code to power electrical devices. And those switches we give a name, and that name is a transistor. And what's happened over time is that we've got better and better at cramming these transistors onto chips. So this process is known as Moore's Law which states that roughly every two years, the number of transistors on a chip will roughly double. And what that means is that today, if we look at a leading smartphone, say the iPhone, the A16 chip within that has about 16 billion transistors all crammed into the space, roughly the size of a fingernail. So these semiconductors, these chips, really are the brains of all modern electronics. There's lots of different types of them, but fundamentally what they all do 
is they transfer, store, and, and, and process data. And that's why they've become the kind of beating heart of the modern digital economy. So, Charlie, what are some of the types of chips? Sure. So the, there are three main types of chip, chips. They are the logic, uh, memory, um, and analog. Uh, within uh, logic, there are, there are two core parts there, and they're called the CPU and the GPU. The CPU is a, is a central processing unit and is at the heart of, of every computer and handles the core processing tasks. On top of that, we've also got a GPU. Now, a GPU originally came out as a, a graphic uh, processing unit and originally came out because of the complexity of dealing with graphics, which was a huge amount of data uh, and was very, very niche. But what's become interesting with the GPU is that initially why it might have been used as graphics, for graphics, there's actually a realization that can be used for many more complex computational tasks. So everything now from uh, high-performance computing to analytics to data science to machine learning, artificial intelligence, and even Bitcoin mining uses GPUs. So there's been a huge explosion in the use of that type of, of chip. Alongside a, uh, a logic chip, uh, the second category of chip are called memory chips. Now, memory chips are very simple. Uh, they are, can be defined as either DRAM chips or, or NAND chips. And effectively, what they do is store data. And the logic chip will go in and out of, of, DRAM, of memory chips, taking data and using it uh, accordingly. Um, those two types of chips that I just mentioned there, uh, DRAM and NAND, they're differentiated by whether they can store data if they have an energy source. And they're called non-volatile or volatile um, types of chips. Then the third type of chip we have are called analog chips. And, and this I always refer, refer to as the bridge between the real world and the digital world. And so put very simply, uh, when your phone picks up a sound or a light source or something like that, the analog chip is able to take that real world uh, sense and turn it into a digital signal, which can then communicate with, with the other chips. Uh, what's fascinating with the with the analog chip, and it's it's very interesting to see the human world coming into the computer world, is that analog software engineers actually take around ten to twelve years to tra really train up to be kind of masters of their of their universe in terms of their ability to to process and to um, compute uh, analog chips, and just shows how complex uh, this chip software design can be. Brilliant, and that's really helpful. Thank you, and I really think it helps set the base for the rest of. The discussion but then just thinking about i suppose the broad market for semiconductors how big is this market and how has it evolved over time well could you provide maybe some numbers for um, to help us understand that so in aggregate the global semiconductor market generated around 600 billion dollars in revenue in 2021 that's been growing mid to high single digits over the last decade so well ahead of, of nominal gdp growth albeit it's been more volatile than, than GDP. Um, the industry is, is prone to periods of, of under and, and oversupply, and that exacerbates some of its growth trends. But a recent McKinsey study um, estimated that the industry is going to be worth around $1.1 trillion by 2030. So that's actually a 9% compound growth rate off the 2021 base. So accelerating growth compared to the previous decade. Um, so semiconductors are a large growing, accelerating market. Now, $600 billion is a big number, so it's helpful to kind of decompose it. And I would suggest three ways of kind of analyzing the market. The first is to think about end markets. Where do these semiconductors end up? Now, the biggest use case out of that 600 billion is smartphones. So around $150 billion of that 600 billion. 
PCs and servers, they're big markets too, roughly $100 billion each. And then automotive is another important market, about $50 billion, but growing very fast as the world transitions to EVs away from internal combustion engines. You get around double the amount of semiconductors needed in an EV versus an internal combustion engine car. So that's the first way of thinking about the market. The second is, is what Charlie's just been describing, by the type of chip. Logic chips account for around half the market. Memory is about 30%. And then the remainder are those analog, you know, sensor, sensor chips. I think the third way to think about this market is perhaps the most important. And it's the way that we think about it when we're analyzing the market. And that's thinking about the value chain and the players that sit along it. So really, there are five types of companies in the semiconductor value chain. The first are designers, the likes of NVIDIA and Qualcomm. They spend their lives designing chips like CPUs and GPUs. That's their sole job. The second group are manufacturers. Their sole job is making these chips. We call these foundries, and TSMC is a great example of that. The third group combines both. So they're both designers and they're manufacturers under the same roof. We call these integrated device manufacturers, or IDMs, Samsung, Intel. They're some great examples. Finally, you have two groups of companies that kind of feed this design and manufacturing process. The first are a group of software businesses, which we call EDA developers, so electronic design automation. And really, they're like the Photoshop, but for the chip-making world. It's a little bit more complicated than Photoshop. Um, but the big two players in that market are, are Cadence and Synopsys. And then we have the final group. These are capital equipment providers. They basically make the machines that you use to make the chips. So players like ASML and LAM Research. So that's three ways of thinking about the market, the end markets, the types of chips, and then the value chain approach. And I think that's really how we focus on, on disaggregating the market. Brilliant, thank you. But I think there's just one point I want to sort of pull out of that. And it's probably a combination of thinking about those end markets, which arguably tend to be quite cyclical. And also you touch upon the sort of demand and supply dynamics and can lead to a bit of cyclicality within semiconductors. And as I think we can all agree, sitting within the quality investment team, and we're looking for long-term investments, competitive advantages, which are going to grow across different market cycles and have a low sensitivity to the economic cycle, is sort of, in a way, the opposite of cyclicality. So when thinking about the semiconductor space, how do you sort of mm. balance that? And why do you think, through a quality lens, the semiconductor space is still a high-quality part of the market to find ideas? So I'd agree with you to start. It's, it's clear, hopefully, um, that semiconductors have very attractive structural growth trends. So I think we're all in agreement there that... The world continues to demand ever faster, ever cheaper compute. The usage of semiconductors proliferates every day. It's not just in our smartphones, in our PCs, and in the data center. It's in our connected homes, our connected offices, and even in our cars. So there's clearly growth there. But as you said, growth alone doesn't make an investment case. It's simply one input into how we and the quality team go about our work. And you know, what do we seek? We seek businesses with, with clearly identifiable competitive advantages, businesses with little reliance on economic or market cycles, financial models that uh, are not reliant on leverage, don't require capital to grow and generate good cash. And we want them to allocate that cash in a prudent and sustainable manner. And then when we find all of those, we only buy those companies when they're trading at an attractive valuation for their quality. Now, semiconductors, I agree, falls down on a couple of, of, of regards. Uh, and that's really around its inherent cyclicality and capital intensity. And so when we are allocating capital, we have to tread very carefully in this sector. We believe that there are, there are niches within semiconductors. 
and winners within those niches that are actually pretty insulated from that inherent cyclical risk that uh, is embedded within the sector. And really as a team of, of portfolio managers and an analyst, our job is, is to identify those niches and identify those winners. And really, if we're being honest, we only think a, a small handful of semiconductor stocks are actually applicable for our process and, and meet the criteria we set out. Okay, brilliant. I think that's a great segue um, into looking at some of the players, some of the stocks that we think meet that criteria. So Charlie, if you could perhaps provide, and maybe from an Asia point sure. of view, some of the stocks, their competitive advantages, um, the strength of their business sure. model. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, as you say, it's fascinating because I think you know, certainly we, we've seen it from an Asian perspective that you know, semiconductors are a core part of the industry evolution in, in Asia. And it's part of this kind of emergence of quality that you've seen in Asia over the last decade. Because when you look back 10, 15 years ago, the semiconductor stocks in, in Asia were actually pretty low quality, highly cyclical, uh, very boom bust. Um, and obviously the two main examples there would be Samsung and TSMC. Um, if you were listening earlier, then you remember that um, Samsung um, actually is the core component of memory chips and TSMC is the core kind of manufacturer of uh, logic chips. So if we just start with Samsung and, and look at the memory industry, um, the memory, memory industry, I think, is probably if alongside equipment uh, providers, the most cyclical industry within the semiconductor space. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was an incredibly fragmented industry. Uh, you had uh, 15 plus players, but no, none with real significant market share. And what would happen is you'd have a, a boom in the memory cycle. So memory price prices would go up, uh, chip prices would go up, uh, there'd be a massive amount of demand. And so all the memory players would say, right, let's put on a lot of supply. And sure enough, there'd be too much supply and you'd get this great cyclical downturn. Some would go bust, some would carry on. Now, what you've seen happen, though, over the last decade is it has moved from a 15 um, you know, kind of um, company industry to really about three now, three core core players. Um, and that is um, Hynix, uh, Samsung, and Micron. And Samsung is the key leader within this, and they have over 50% market share. And what's interesting is that with each cycle, Samsung is able to push harder and harder. And this is a very good example which is happening at the moment, where Hynix and Micron have just come out in this cycle, and we've got a bit of a downturn at the moment, and they're cutting their capex by 50%. Samsung have announced they're maintaining their capex, which means they continue to gain that technology lead. They have better processing power, they have better efficiency, and they have better pricing. And so they continue to gain market share. The result of that on the financials within a, a Samsung is that the cyclicality within their margins has significantly decreased. Now, no point in my saying that Samsung is no longer a cyclical stock. Yes, there is a level of cyclicality within it. But the financial considerations and the financial characteristics of that business um, has, has vastly, uh, vastly improved. Um, TSMC is, is, a, is, is the main proponent of, of logic chip. It is the leading logic chip uh, foundry in the world. Um, in fact, it's, uh, it's the only foundry which is able to produce at, at three nanometers and, and shortly at two nanometers um, as, as well on a, on a mass basis. Uh, Samsung would argue that they're trying to catch up, but really... TSMC is the, is the leading um, proponent there. Uh, where TSMC is so fascinating, is, as Will mentioned earlier, is that it, it manufactures for third parties. So for NVIDIA, for Apple, for Broadcom, uh, even for Samsung, actually. Um, what it's able to do as a result is gain knowledge from all these components, all these proponents within the industry, and really further its technology leadership. Um, it also has a fascinating pricing model 
that TSMC isn't reliant on third-party prices like the, the oil price, which is how memory chips are priced, but its chips are priced on, a, on an individual basis. So if you, Joe, are Apple and you come to me and say, right, I'd like this number of chips, I go, thanks very much, Joe. That'll be X cost to me, but I'm going to add 50% margin to that. So it's been able to take out all its cyclicality <coughs> in, in that sense. And we're certainly seeing that, that from TSMC. So, so two very high quality businesses, uh, which have vastly improved their quality um, over the last decade. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. And Will, a name or two from yourself? So the name I'm, I'm going to talk about is, is ASML. So to, to paraphrase the science fiction writer Arthur Clarke, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I think <laughs> ASML is, is that's a very apt description for, for ASML. So who are they? They're a, they're a Dutch company. They are a semiconductor capital equipment provider. So they make systems that are sold to the likes of Samsung for making memory chips or to TSMC for making logic chips. Now, the manufacturing process for chips is incredibly complex and has a number of different process steps. And each of those steps requires highly specialized equipment. ASML focus on just one step, arguably the most important step, and that's lithography. You can think of lithography almost like a, a high-tech photocopier. So what it does is it uses ultraviolet light and it uses that to transfer designs from what we call a chip mask, um, which you can think of really just as a, as a picture of the design you're trying to create. And it uses that light to transfer it onto, onto the silicon that you're trying to turn into, into a chip. And it's a three-player market. So there's two other competitors alongside uh, ASML, two Japanese companies, Canon and Nikon. ASML have led the market for the last couple of decades. So already we're beginning to have a fairly interesting investment proposition. So it's a, it's a leader in a consolidated space, serving the structural growth industry of, of semiconductors. But for us in, in the quality team, where things get really interesting is, is how they've pioneered an entirely new type of technology within lithography. So this light source, this EUV, the deep ultraviolet light that uses um, that were used to, to make chip designs, it, it's struggling to make patterns that are, that are small enough for leading edge chips. So Charlie mentioned just then, TSMC is making three nanometer chips. And frankly, the light source isn't, isn't small enough to make something that precise anymore. And so what ASML began to develop is an alternative technology. And just to put that in a bit of perspective, three nanometers. A, a human hair has a diameter of about 100,000 nanometers. Oh, wow. A single SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that unfortunately gives us COVID, has a diameter of about 100 nanometers. So, so three is, is pretty small, and it's, it's almost atomic in, in scale. So that's, that's the challenge for, for ASML. But back to that alternative technology. That alternative technology is called extreme ultraviolet light, or, or EUV. Now, it's really an engineering marvel. Even generating this light is a, is a fiendishly difficult task. It is so fragile, it gets absorbed by everything around it, including air. So you have to create it in a, in a pure vacuum. And so difficult was the task that Canon and, and Nikon didn't even attempt to, to commercialize EUV. But persistence pays off. And although it's taken them about 20 years, uh, in the last five years or so, ASML has really commercialized EUV. And now... What does that mean for its business model? It goes from being a market leader to trending towards basically 100% market share in leading edge lithography systems. They are the only ones with, with EUV technology. And what does that mean for the, for the financial model? Well, if we look back to 2010, so look back over the last 10, 10 years or so, ASML has compounded revenues in the low teens, and that compares to the mid to high single digit industry growth I described earlier. So well ahead of industry growth. 
the rollout of EUV has helped gross margins go from low 40s to above 50% today. So we've seen margin improvement. You combine those elements with consistent share buybacks, actually accelerating share buybacks. Yeah. And what that means is that they've compounded earnings at an 18% CAGR since 2010. So very, very attractive rates of compounding. And we believe that given the continued rollout of EUV into leading edge um, chip making, that they can continue to compound earnings and free cash flows at a similar rate for the foreseeable future. Well, that's fascinating. And just to be crude, how much uh, will one of these machines set you back? They're pretty expensive, Joe. So the, the, the newest machines are now going to cost you something like 350 million euros. So you're going to have okay. to save up a bit. Okay. Okay. So thank you both for um, that granular detail and some of the players within the industry and how the structure of the industry and their competitive advantages you know, can mitigate some of that cyclicality. And I think we understand the long-term case for semiconductors. But I think we need to address the sort of elephant in the room, and that are some of the sort of geopolitical short-term headwinds. I mean, you only need to the articles today about pressure on ASML to conform to the sort of U.S. Um, regulation around exporting certain semiconductor equipment. We've seen certain bans on the ex- exporting of high-end chips. So, Charlie... Perhaps you could just walk us through what the developments have been um, in that space with a sure. certain regulation with, with the U.S. Chips yeah. Act over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how long we got, Joe, but, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and keep it um, succinct. I mean, I mean, I think you, you can really go back to the banning of Huawei in 2018-19 and, and when it was no longer allowed to export uh, effectively to, to the U.S. Or, or much of Europe, but also it was banned from importing uh, high-end technology uh, to help with hi- to help with its evolution, and I'd almost describe that as kind of the first shot of the, of the tech war uh, between the U.S. and China. <clears throat> and then since then, we've seen a continuation, and it's really accelerated this year. Um, it started with the U.S. banning Nvidia from um, exporting its high-end chips, the the H100, as as Will keeps telling me about the Hopper, uh, into into China. Uh, primarily, this was under the, um, the prerequisite that it could be used for military applications. Um, in reality, I'm not sure if that is entirely the case. Uh, it could be perhaps further down the line, but really it's just about stopping that technology evolution. Um, we've seen a further um, enactment to that with the CHIPS Act, as you just mentioned. So the CHIPS Act is less about China, but it's more about bringing supply back into the U.S. because at the moment, a very, very small proportion of chips globally are actually manufactured in the U.S., uh, and that's something they want to change. Mm-hmm. And then more recently <clears throat> was when the, 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 the BIS, uh, the Bureau of Industry and Security, came out with its new regulations around what could be imported to China in terms of high-end technology with regard to semiconductors. And effectively what this act did, or the new BIS stipulations, was that it has effectively stopped the evolution of China's semiconductor uh, industry in its tracks. It's absolutely stopped it. So historically, the the position of the U.S. government had been what I'd describe as like the slide rule approach, which was it's okay um, that China is evolving its technology because we're evolving ours, so it's actually maintaining a distance between the, the technology capability. Mm-hmm. But what this act has done is said, right, actually, we're putting in the line <coughs> right now with regards memory, with regards logic, with uh, not so much analog, but memory and, and logic, that they can't actually evolve uh, from here. So it's been very, very strict on that. Now, 
you might then say, well, what does this actually mean to, to the industry overall? And as I've just made, made it clear there, it is very impactful upon Chinese semiconductor industry, but it is much less impactful than I think the US government would like um, with regards what's going to happen to the US semiconductor industry, what's going to happen within Taiwan, what's going to happen within Korea, and what's going to happen within Europe. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, uh, as Will's been um, alluding to or, or saying in great detail, um, is the specialization within the industry. That it is simply not possible to go and say, right, we'd like to have all the main equipment manufacturers now producing in the US. We'd like to have all the main logic foundries here, all the, all the memory um, foundries here as well, because it just takes too long and too much capital. So I'll give you an example there. Um, Samsung is going to open a foundry in Arizona um, in 2024. Uh, the groundbreaking on that started at the end of 2021, beginning of, beginning of this year. Uh, that's going to be five nanometers, so it's not even, not even um, leading edge. Um, even when they have that um, in size in production, and the same with the, the TSMC um, fab as well, it's only going to represent around 1% to 2% of total production of either of those companies. So it's going to take a very long time to get to 5% or 10% or 20% and many, many billions of dollars. On the other hand as well, if you're Taiwan or TSMC, <clears throat> you don't want to move all your production from Taiwan um, because you have the um, connectivity there, you have the network effect there, which is so important with, with their um, foundries there. Um, but also you want to maintain technology leadership locally. So although there's a lot of noise around it at the moment and it's had a huge impact within China, mm -hmm. I don't actually think there's going to be as much of an impact as people might perceive within Taiwan, Korea and the US, certainly on a short to medium term basis. And, and Charlie, maybe just to, to double click on one of those elements, which is the subsidies. So a lot of fanfare around the, the CHIPS <coughs> Act in the US um, release around $50 billion worth of, of funding for semiconductor fabrication in the US. And Charlie's talked about some of the initial um, onshoring that's occurring in the US. China, through various funding mechanisms, has probably spent maybe $80 billion or so, and, and the European Union now is looking to, to replicate um, what, what the US has done with its own CHIPS Act. Clearly not insignificant amounts of money. We're talking about billions of dollars um, of subsidies. But I think it's important to put it in context. And the context is the amount of capex that the industry is spending. So if we look at just the, the five biggest players in terms of capex spend, that's Intel, Samsung, TSMC, SK Hynix, and Micron. In just the next five years, they're going to spend $600 billion in capex. And I think it really shows that although subsidies are, are noisy and they are impacting maybe some of the short to medium term um, dynamics around the industry, the business fundamentals, the country-sized budgets of these major semiconductor businesses are really what drives the sector. That's what matters for long-term focused yeah. investors rather than noise around subsidy levels. Yeah. Yeah. So there's only a real sort of drop in the ocean there. Subsidy. A drop in the ocean. But then just, I know, Charlie, you mentioned it uh, with TSMC, but perhaps, Will, you can also speak about how these companies, ASML, NVIDIA, are navigating it. Because, as you mentioned, if NVIDIA were banned on expert, exporting certain chips or ASML were banned on certain EUV um, manufacturing export, surely this will have a direct impact on the financials of the company. So what are the companies saying and why are they well positioned to help navigate this short-term noise? Sure. So let's maybe start with, with NVIDIA. 
they, as Charlie said, were, were one of the first in this latest round, la latest escalation of, of the US-China tech war um, to be impacted. And effectively, they were banned from selling their highest-end ships, their A100 and H100 ships, into the Chinese market. And initially, they, they, they quantified this as, as maybe it's a $400 million um, revenue impact on a quarterly basis, so annualized $1.6 billion of revenue. And in reality, and this is, this is true pretty much across, across our coverage and across the, the universe, the impact has been a lot smaller than that. And the reason for that is, is they can sell slightly less powerful chips. So they can sell, for example, the A30s or the V100s. These are older chips, lots of acronyms, I'm sorry. Um, but what they've also done is they've introduced uh, slightly lower powered versions of, say, the A100, an A800 chip that they've introduced just for the Chinese market, done it in collaboration with the BIS in the US to make sure that it's, it's fully um, aligned with, with the regulations. And that's now selling into the China market. So actually the impact from NVIDIA is, is fairly small. I think there is longer term questions on, on how big the, the market now will be for, for NVIDIA in China. Um, if they're unable to, to continue to progress, as Charlie talked about, the, the moving from a sliding rule to more of an absolute basis, yeah. maybe the China market for NVIDIA in the long term will be a little smaller. But at the moment, they're able to sell pretty much as they were before with only a few new um, restrictions around the edges. I think the story is similar for ASML. So ASML, 15% of its sales came from China last year, so not immaterial, albeit that's actually quite a bit smaller than the other um, capital equipment providers, the LAM researchers of the world, applied materials. But actually that 15% of, of revenue is, is not the, the revenue at risk for them. So let's break it down. 15%, around 5% of that is multinationals. So Samsung operating fabs in China, TSMC operating fabs in China. They've already received waivers from the US government and the expectation is they will continue to do so because those fabs aren't even leading edge fabs anyway. So that 15% at risk falls to maybe nine to 10% of revenue. The next thing to remember is about half of that that remains, so another 5%, is for very mature applications in China. So these fabs are, are not leading edge at all. They produce the kind of widgets that power maybe your fridge, um, maybe some industrial applications. The US has been very clear they are not trying to stop China producing these kind of chips. They don't have strategic value, and actually it's a lose-lose situation for the US to be blocking them. So again, they're outside the scope of the rules. That leaves us with about 5% of revenue potentially at risk, and that's what ASML management is saying. That's the indirect risk. As you alluded to earlier, Joe, they're a Dutch company, so they don't actually fall under these rules. So that 5% is, is a hypothetical risk. It's okay. a hypothetical risk if, if the rules changed and the US tightened or managed to get the Dutch government to, to, to agree to these rules. Um, it's also potentially the impact if, because Chinese fabs are unable to access US equipment, they stop ordering ASML, because if you can't fill your fab with all the other important process applications, there's no point yeah. ordering lithography systems. But what I would say about that 5% of revenue at risk, so that is what we think is, is potentially at risk for ASML, is that ultimately ASML is customer ambivalent. They don't really mind where chips are made. They're almost a, an infrastructure provider to the industry. Sure. So what we've seen in the past is that when these kind of things happen and, and customers decide to cancel orders or, or there's a reallocation of capacity, what happens is that capacity pops up elsewhere in South Korea, in Taiwan, in the US. And therefore, although there may be a, a short-term headwind from that 5% of capacity perhaps stopping ordering, in the long run, that will reallocate and it will be a neutral impact on, on ASML. So again, for longer-term investors, we, we think that's more noise than signal. So there, what I might just, just add would be around Samsung and TSMC. Oh, okay. 
uh, just with regards, yeah, what, what is the impact of, of the Chinese ban um, in particular? And just to kind of add on to what, what Will was, was discussing there, um, what's fascinating there is actually that the, the, one of the key tail risks to Samsung longer term was Chinese technology and the Chinese semiconductor industry. And they'll probably be sitting there in, in Korea right now actually rubbing their hands because it was a key tail risk. And suddenly the likes of SMIC and YMTC, which are the, the key semiconductor com companies in China, can no longer evolve their technology. Um, so that's one benefit to, to Samsung in terms of its memory business. But the, the other thing is, and you know, we have been talking about this, is around the geopolitics, that if you are an Apple or a Qualcomm or, or NVIDIA, whoever it might be, you are very aware of the geopolitical risks around Taiwan and what's happening with China, et cetera. You want to diversify your production base. So mm -hmm. Samsung is making a real move into foundry, into logic, um, and could actually end up um, benefiting uh, from that. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, there is this move to try and onshore TSMC and um, Samsung into the, into the US. Uh, we've actually done quite a lot of work around this and seen kind of the potential cost implications that this could have to, to these um, companies. Uh, but certainly the initial research we've done on this is that uh, a like-for-like -like foundry in the US compared to Taiwan is 40% more uh, cost in terms of mm -hmm. order to build and high 30s in terms of operating costs. So the subsidies which are required in order to make that economic for those businesses will be very significant. Stroke, do they really want to move that amount of production, production there um, anyway? Um, there are also obviously some quite interesting inflationary implications from that if you suddenly go and increase all your chip prices by that much. Understood. Thank you for that. But then I suppose thinking about the longer term, a $1.1 trillion market is going to attract a lot of disruption. Quantum computing um, is banded about. So perhaps before we move on, Will, can you dispel some of those those headwinds that the sector might face over the sort of medium to long term? So there's an old joke in technology that nuclear fusion is always 30 years away. This promise of unlimited clean energy. 20 years ago, it's 30 years away. In 20 years time, it's, it's probably still 30 years away. And the same could maybe be said about quantum computing. It's always a decade away from disrupting the status quo. And so whilst I think there's a lot interesting, there's a lot of interesting things happening in, in quantum computing, um, we're of the view that the materiality of that risk for our semiconductor uh, holdings is, is, is pretty low. Um, and maybe to give some background, um, and I'll say up front, I'm no quantum uh, expert, so forgive me if I say anything stupid. But what we've been talking about so far is classical computing. I talked earlier about those ones and zeros, those transistors. That's called a bit, that unit of compute, one or zero. It's the foundation of all, of all computing. Now, quantum computing works a little bit differently. It's based on quantum mechanics, so the study of subatomic particles. And what physicists have found is that when you go that small, things start to happen which classical physics can't really explain. For example, there's a phenomenon known as a superposition, that, that quantum states can actually be in two different states at the same time, which sounds counterintuitive. Um, but what this means is that Scientists have, have harnessed these kind of phenomenon and created a new unit of compute fundamentally, which they call the qubit. So it's like a bit, it can be one and zero, but it can also be one and zero at the same time or somewhere in between. And if that doesn't make sense, it's because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and even the industry experts, of which I'm certainly not one, are still confused about how this exactly works. But the basic idea is that because these qubits have the ability to 
be one and zero at the same time, they handle uncertainty, they can in theory be millions of times better than traditional computers at certain computational tasks, encryption, for example. Now that sounds like a potentially bad news for, for our incumbents, the, yeah. the semiconductor stocks that we cover. You know, their competitive advantage, their moats, are rooted in, in this classical computing world. But as I said, we're not particularly concerned, at least over the next decade, that this is this is a material risk to those companies. And the reason for that is that qubits and, and quantum states are extremely fragile. They are knocked out of superposition by almost yeah. anything. So the quantum computers that you might hear about at IBM, they have to be created in pure vacuums and then frozen down to close to absolute zero. So they, they're running at a temperature that's lower than outer space. So these are not these are not easy systems to build. Even generating these qubits is extremely challenging. The the best IBM systems have a few dozen qubits, and that's compared to trillions and trillions of bits in a in a traditional computer. So we think the the technical hurdles are are vast and if you speak to anyone in the industry they're of the view that for the next decade and probably the next couple of decades quantum computing doesn't represent a material threat to traditional computing and hence we're, we're quite comfortable although it's a very exciting field and no doubt funding and and news flow around quantum computing will increase this decade we're comfortable yeah. in the competitive positioning of of our holdings thank you so I suppose just to put what we've discussed so far in layman's terms, the world needs more semiconductors. We're going to work through the geopolitical noise. And well, as you've just mentioned, the long-term tail risks should be navigated. But just as we sort of bring this all to a close, it'd be great to get, Charlie, your opinion. Looking ahead, who do you think will be the long-term, <laughs> long-term winners in this yeah. space? Oh, the magic ball. Um, <laughs> the, um, I mean, I do think it's interesting. We, we just actually, we, we obviously spend a lot of time talking talking to corporates. So Will's just spent um, some time with ASML in, in the Netherlands at their, their Investor Day. Uh, we recently had the TSMC CFO come through. We met him and then Samsung just had their Investor Day. And I think what's been fascinating from looking at those kind of three core key players in, in different parts of the market is that their longer term growth projections on where they think the semiconductor industry is going to be in five years' time, in 10 years' time, was, was remarkably similar. Um, I, I find it um, astounding that the likes of TSMC you know, publicly announced that based on the demand they're seeing from their clients and the see-through they're seeing from their clients, that they're going to be able to grow their top-line U.S. dollar revenue by 15 to 20 percent um, over the next five years. I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite staggering, that, as, as a figure, considering the scale of the company. But it gives you an idea of the computational demand that they are seeing coming through from their clients. And it comes back to what, what Will mentioned at the beginning, that it's, traditionally this has been um, around computers, then we moved on to onto smartphones, mm -hmm. but it's this whole new world which is coming out. And, and Samsung actually brought it out in their presentation uh, where they said, look, the, the amount of computational power required in an electric vehicle is 30 to 50 times as much as within a smartphone. Now, obviously, you're going to sell many more smartphones than you are vehicles, but you know, when you're looking at potentially selling 10 million or 50 million or 100 million electric vehicles going forward on, on an annualized basis, you can see that they actually see that auto as part of the, the memory market is going to be around 25% of the memory market in, in 2030, which is from a very small base now. So it just gives you that idea of that conversation of um, growth coming through. But I think the key here is, and what we've highlighted in, in this particular podcast, is that the specialization within the semiconductor industry is only going to accelerate further. Mm -hmm. So 
Those who are good at memory are going to get better and better at memory. Those who are good at logic are going to get better and better at logic. Those who are doing the key equipment suppliers are going to get better and better. And those are the areas I think you need to focus on on, on a longer-term basis. Yes, there is going to be some level of disruption coming through from the geopolitical, um, from geopolitical risk. Um, there is always going to be some level of disruption coming through from, from new disruptors coming through. But the many decades of capital requirements and knowledge needed to get to this point I think means that the moat around these companies is quite secure. Well, thank you to uh, both of you. I think that's a, a great way to, to round things out. And I, I mean, we could talk for many more hours, I'm sure, on all the different avenues within the space. But it's been a great overview of how we at 91 within the quality team are really thinking about um, this growing um, and fascinating industry. So, Will, Charlie, thank you for your time. Great. Thank Thanks, you. Trey. Cheers. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorized financial services provider.